0: Paul Embury is a trade unionist and writer based in the UK. We talk about Brexit and the wrong moves that labour and trade union movements have taken over the past several decades, and what needs to be done to achieve real representation for those who feel left behind. This conversation was recorded before I'd sorted some minor audio issues, so it's unfortunately not 100%, but I think it's still listenable. Here's a taste of what you'll see in the second half at patreon.com slash Frawley.
1: I would also tell them that they, they, they got wrong the idea that very patronizing idea I think that that Open Borders was also going to, to bring about you know social and cultural enrichment to those communities and they would all really benefit from it and they would all see how wonderful it was um, and and they didn't because they They saw such rapid and deep-seated and fundamental change. And it wasn't, as I've argued in the book, it wasn't because they didn't react to that uneasily because their sense of race had been disturbed. It was nothing about the fact that they had white skin and some of the new people didn't. It was that their sense of order had been disturbed. It was that everything they were familiar with had been disturbed. So um, my my primary job is a firefighter. That's what I do. That's what I've done for um, about 26 years now, um, and for the vast majority of that time, I've I've been um, an activist in the Fire Brigades Union, which is the the union that represents the vast majority of firefighters across the United Kingdom. Um, and uh, after serving for many years as a as an activist and a low-ranking official. I worked my way up the union, eventually um, got elected to sit on the union's national executive, um, which is its ruling body. Um, and then in 2019, um, I spoke at a pro-Brexit rally outside Parliament in London. Um, and during my speech, I criticised um, the leaders of the Labour movement for the way in which they had been trying to block Brexit since the, the referendum vote in 2016. And I felt that the Labour movement um, had played a pretty sort of ignominious role in the in the whole thing. So I levelled some criticism at, uh, towards the Labour movement at that rally. And I come from the Labour and Trade Union movement and once upon a time the leadership of that movement was very clear that it was opposed to the European Union because it saw it for the anti-socialist and anti-democratic institution it was and we had a movement whose leadership believed in the principles of democracy and self-government and I think of the likes of Tony Benn and Peter Shaw and Barbara Castle and Bob Crow and Michael Foot, giants of the Labour movement who believed passionately in the right of British people to govern themselves rather than have unelected technocrats in Brussels govern the country for us. And it's the leadership today that unfortunately has lost faith in the ability of working people to be able to defend themselves and protect themselves outside of the European Union. And my message to the leaders of my movement is if you want to stay relevant, then it's about time you put yourself on the side of the people over the establishment and big business. It a non-partisan rally, there were people from across the political spectrum speaking at it. Um, and very quickly the General Secretary of my union put in a complaint about me. Um, I was suspended from office, um, I eventually was called to a disciplinary hearing at which I was removed from my role um, and banned from holding office again for a period of two years. I took the union to an employment tribunal. Uh, who found in my favour who said that i've been unfairly dismissed as a result of what the tribunal described as a witch hunt um my union by the way was very anti brexit the general secretary was very anti brexit um many of the senior officials were very anti brexit um and so so yeah I, I won that original employment tribunal and there was there was much kind of national media coverage around that really and and a lot of sympathy from people who don't necessarily even agree with my politics but just felt that it was unfair that I should have lost my role for for the reasons that I did. Now as it happens earlier this year, an appeal against that unfair dismissal finding was heard by the Employment Appeal Tribunal and the union appealed on a very narrow basis. They said that technically I wasn't their employee, I didn't meet the criteria for being an employee of the union and therefore uh, I didn't have a right to claim unfair dismissal. Um, it was quite a complex question. I won't. I won't go into the detail of, of that question here. But the appeal tribunal agreed with the union on that technical point. So the union's appeal was upheld. Um, so even though um, the union kind of, if you like, won the technical victory on on that narrow basis, um, I think most people see that the that the moral victory, if you like, was was mine. So it was you know, it was not a pleasant experience, but I felt it was something that I needed to I needed to fight because I believe in, you know, freedom of expression. I think that there were lots of people, ordinary workers, who naturally once upon a time would have voted for the Labour Party, would be supportive of trade unions, um, and supported Brexit. And you only have to look at the vote in the red wall, um, you know, for, for the amount of people in favour of Brexit. Um And I think the way that the trade unions and the Labour Party um, put themselves on the completely opposite side of so many of those people and ended up actually sneering at those people and looking down uh, at those people and thinking they were kind of thick and racist and this type of thing. I think it was one of the sorriest episodes in the in the history of the the Labour Party and the trade unions, sadly. And, you know, my my own story was just a, a minor part of it, I guess.
0: Do you think this turn that your union took against you um, is, you know, the fact that they didn't really believe in your own free speech? Do you see that as emblematic of a turn taken by unions more generally, or is this just a one off kind of thing?
1: I may be speaking from experience here. (laughs) Yeah, well, no, I I think it is emblematic of the left that really doesn't believe in free speech, claims to believe in free speech, but increasingly on the left, but not just the left, I think wider society actually, there's there's uh, an atmosphere whereby if you don't follow the orthodoxy on certain questions, um, then you're regarded as being beyond the pale. You, know? you know, to just be grossly
0: generalistic,
1: you, you could, could put
0: Half of Trump supporters
1: into what I call the basket of deplorables. <laughs> right? Um, and unions have become as much, I think, a part of that, sustaining that orthodoxy and not allowing space for alternative views or where people do express alternative views. Um, they're in danger of being cancelled and, and driven out of public life and it's almost as if now for for someone to claim that they were offended in a debate uh, some people on the left think that should be the end of the debate you know if someone's offended um, therefore some sort of cardinal sin has been committed and the debate can go no further you cannot cause offense to anybody by expressing your own view and my view is well you know of course you shouldn't go out of your way to gratuitously offend people but if you have expressed the genuinely held political or moral view um, and someone has taken offense at that and the problem is with them the problem isn't with you Um, you've got to be in the marketplace of ideas particularly on the left I mean the left once upon a time was known for challenging establishment thinking you know for for, often accused of sedition in years gone by because of the way it was prepared to challenge orthodoxies nowadays particularly on you know social and and moral questions um the left not only follows the orthodoxy almost on mass um but as i say just just frowns upon and and worse than that drives out of the ranks people who who ever express a different view um and that's 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 worrying it's worrying
0: what a lot of people will say is is it really so bad that you can't express racist or sexist or anti-immigrant views in the workplace? Are you really just going to die if you can't do that? Surely this is progressive and we're protecting workers by by having these kinds of ideas in place. Uh, sorry, these kinds of um, limitations on what can be said. Um, what do you say to that kind of response?
1: Well, in, in terms in terms of in the workplace, um, I mean, I, I think that if... <laughs> obviously no employer can allow harassment you know if if you are harassing individuals um, in their work then nobody should have to put up with that and of course there are times I completely accept where employers are required to intervene Um, but I think that should always be when it comes to a genuine exchange of ideas and a genuine debate um, a genuine difference of opinion um, I think employers should be very, very slow to intervene, particularly where you know, someone has, has expressed a genuinely held um, political or moral view. Um, when it comes to saying things publicly, for example, you know, we've, we've seen countless workers over recent years who have been disciplined or sacked for expressing particular views on social media. And often these are just you know, views that much of the mainstream of, of Britain hold out there. Um, And, you know, they've been they've been vilified by their employer and they've been, as I say, in in some cases, they've lost their jobs. Um, I tend to think that unless an employer can demonstrate that there is some tangible detriment that it has experienced as a result of what the employee has said or done, then I don't think the employer has got any right to to intervene in what people say in their private lives on social media or elsewhere. and the Free Speech Union, led by Toby Young, has come out with a really good proposal uh, on this, that, that the Employment Rights Act, which is a governing piece of employment legislation in Britain, should be amended and to that effect. So essentially, and, unless the employer can prove that there is some um, you know, kind of serious damage that it's incurred, reputational damage or you know, loss of profits or whatever is as a result of the employee's actions, um, then, then no, I don't believe any employer should have the right to do that. And, and sadly, the mainstream of the trade union movement are just not interested in this debate. It's left to people like the Free Speech Union to raise these issues, and they're often the first union to to support people who have been um, disciplined or are facing a threat of the sack because of you know something they've said, expressing a genuinely held political or moral view. Most of the trade union movement is running a mile from this sort of stuff. The TUC never comments on it. Um, most most major trade unions never comment on it, um, and I think that's a, that's an indictment really of the the union movement and how far it has travelled from from its roots. I think nowadays it's too too often it's what I call the, the mouthpiece of the London liberal class. Um, it it expresses you know the the, the view of the kind of professional and managerial classes, um, the the middle class graduate people living in our fashionable cities and our university towns, um, it will still campaign on things like the minimum wage and a fairer economy and things like that, Um, but when it comes to those broader social issues um, it's in the grip of this kind of rigid orthodoxy and because of that i think that there are millions of workers across the country who are currently um, unrepresented by trade unions who are not even looking towards trade unions as as being of any use or benefit to them um, you know you look at you look at parts of post industrial britain where people are in precarious and transient employment they're on zero house contracts they're working in the gig economy and so on often these are the places that are crying out for trade union representation you know, in the, in the private sector um, where, where wages are low and conditions are poor. Um, but unions are not organising there and people are not looking towards unions in, in those places and in those industries because I think there is a, a huge disconnect between the trade union movement and ordinary working people now. And um, I don't really see that ending anytime soon, sadly.
0: Do you have a sense of why that's happened? Why, why has the trade union movement travelled so far away from the everyday wants, needs and desires of people?
1: I think there's a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, it's not all completely self-inflicted. I mean, the the, the trade union movement went through a really difficult time, particularly in the 1980s, um, as a result of Margaret Thatcher's anti-trade union legislation, which she brought in, which made it much more difficult for trade unions to organise, basically, and to operate effectively. Um, that coupled with the process of deindustrialization, which um, really was accelerated during that decade. Uh, and some of those industries, you know, the, the, the old industries, heavy industry, steelworks, mines, shipyards, and so on, and even, you know, our manufacturing base, which traditionally had always been heavily unionized. Those jobs in industries started disappearing, and, and with them went union membership in large numbers. I, I think in 1980, something like 13 million workers in Britain were members of trade unions. Um, I think now it's just under 7 million. So, in those 40 years, trade union membership has halved. Um, so, so, that process of deindustrialization and anti union legislation certainly. Um, had an effect on the ability of unions to organize. Um, but some of it undoubtedly is self inflicted. Um, some of it is very similar to the way in which the Labour Party, I think, lost working class people. Um, it increasingly adopted this kind of agenda of cosmopolitan liberalism. Um, it began to reject any sense of being, um, you know, a, a defender of traditional working class values. Um, it Increasingly, sort of went on this path, that this ideological path, um, which alienated alienated those communities, and and kind of looked back at those communities and and sneered at uh, their traditional values, and thought they were kind of unenlightened and bigoted, and just thought that those those people had nowhere else to go, that they would always vote Labour because they would never vote Tory, um, and for a while that was true, that happened, and then you know, I would say around the, the, the turn of the century when I think globalization really began to, to impact in working class communities in this country. People were affected by the emerging global market in terms of, you know, in terms of the impact on jobs and so on, um, and they were also impacted by things such as free movement of labor and the very sort of rapid demographic changes that were taking place. So this kind of double whammy, of globalisation. On the one hand, the the rapid and large scale movements of capital um, and all of the disruption that that can cause. And on the other hand, the rapid and large scale movements of labour and the disruption that that can cause. Um, And the Labour Party throughout all of this was saying to working class communities, this is good, you know, this is is modernity, this is globalisation, this is cosmopolitanism, you should be embracing this. And those working class communities kind of said, well, but we're not sensing any benefit from this, economically or socially or culturally, so what are you talking about? Um, and, and that chasm began to emerge between the, the left and working class communities, uh, and it just began growing and it grew and grew um, from the turn of the century, and and I think it eventually played out in Brexit, and then in the 2019 general election, some of us saw this coming a long time ago, those of us who lived in those working class communities, who could see the disconnects and, and the, anger that was being directed towards the Labour Party and and the wider left, Um, but we weren't listened to, and uh, and we are where we are, as they say.
0: On this idea of immigration, it's probably one of the most contentious issues, (laughs) Um, but of course it's not anything new, right? Like Marx talked about um, how workers were, uh, the ideas that people held, or the anger that people held uh, around Irish immigration and how Irish immigration was explicitly used to lower wages. And then this produced animosity um, between these different groups of workers. Um, But of course, Marx doesn't just then sort of say that immigration is a problem. Um, He kind of tries to um, up the ante a bit. And what would you say to this kind of situation? Do you just kind of of say, well, workers are anti-immigrant. Therefore, any kind of workers' movement should be (laughs) anti-immigrant.
1: well i mean the, the i think in many respects the sad thing is that the the, the whole issue of immigration has become a, a running sore in our society again and we we've got to a point where it was it had almost become a non issue so you know if you think back to the 1970s for example when it when it was a burning issue in in our politics and you had the likes of the national front who were on the march and you know standing in elections and and stuff like that. And and then for about 20 years, I think because people felt that the system was being managed fairly effectively, um, that numbers were fairly moderate, um, the, the issue really died in our politics. And then all of a sudden, um, around the turn of the, the century, um, it began to become an issue again, it, it started to turn toxic again, because of you know what was happening because of the quite substantial increase in numbers, um, because of the fact that many of those arrivals were um, uh, were, were living in working class communities, were entering industries um, in such numbers that it was having a, a downward effect in terms of people's wages and so on. Um, and then you had obviously EU enlargement in two thousand and four, so the, the process accelerated further still. And so it, it, became, it became a really poisonous issue again. And, and the tragic thing is, I don't think it needed to be that way uh, because the vast majority of people, the vast majority of workers I think in this country are decent and tolerant people. I think the majority of them are pro-immigration. They can see the benefits of it, but they just want the system managed properly. They don't want the system to be abused. And as I said previously, you know, rap- rapid and large scale movements of labor have got the same capacity to cause social and economic disruption in working-class communities as rapid and large-scale movements of capital. That's the reality of the situation and unless you manage that, unless you manage it properly, uh, you're going to risk blowback and that's exactly I think what has happened and I mean in, in terms of your point about the economics of it, I think most people are sensible enough to understand that if, if, if you've got an oversupply of a, a particular commodity um, then invariably it will reduce the price of that commodity and you know, in my view labour is no different to anything else. If you're an employer and you have you know, what Marx called the reserve army of labour a huge pool of labour at your disposal then you're under no particular pressure to increase wages. Um, the, the more workers you've got available in that pool of labour the lower you can can keep wages, that seems to me to be quite obvious. And the the left, parts of the left will argue against that and they'll then employ various kind of specious arguments to to try to rebut that. But I don't think any of them are particularly convincing. And and I think actually the the, the data bears out what I'm saying. And the other point, by the way, is that what what I find really fascinating is the the sort of open borders position, which so much of the left has now embraced until relatively recently, that was actually a fringe position on the left. I mean, the open borders was a position that was articulated only really by the extremes of the left, you know, Trotskyists and anarchists and Uber liberals, the, the majority of the left, the mainstream left, um, understood that actually um, control of labor was necessary for any government in terms of, you know, being able to plan around employment and welfare and wages and jobs and so on. Uh, and Know the the, the supply of labor is a market dynamic which, like all market dynamics, needs to be regulated in the interests of of workers and the wider economy. Uh, That was the mainstream view on the left. Now you articulate that view on the left as I do, and you regard it as beyond the power kind of thing. Um, And that that shows, I think, how much the, the whole thing has turned about. Interestingly, you know, one of the heroes of the left, Bernie Sanders. Um, agrees with with that position that that I've set out, that actually control of the labor supply is necessary.
2: I wonder how it could be that with a supposed scarcity of workers out there that wages and benefits are going down. The guest worker provisions in this bill which will bring many hundreds of thousands of lower wage workers into this country, will only make a bad situation even worse. And I think at a time when the middle class is shrinking, the last thing we need is to bring over a period of years millions of people into this country who are prepared to lower wages for American workers. The idea that in the United States of America today, we need more people to come from other countries who will work at high-tech jobs, whether it's computer programming or other information technology jobs, because we just don't have the workers in America, is absolute nonsense. On one hand, you have large multinationals trying to shut down plants in America, move to China. And on the other hand, you have the service industry bringing in low-wage workers from abroad. The result is the same. Middle class gets shrunken and wages go down.
1: Um, And he says, essentially, you will make all of America poorer because, you know, you would would just allow a situation where pressure was exerted on wages. If you bring workers in from low wage economies to high wage economies, um, obviously, you know, the the chances are you're going to create an oversupply and coming from a low wage economy, those workers will often be prepared to accept wages that workers in a high wage economy wouldn't have done. Um, so all of those problems um, can be created. None of that, by the way, is to blame migrants themselves. I mean, often they're making a perfectly rational decision to, you know, to improve their lives and to better themselves and to improve the lot of their families and, and so on. And they can't be condemned for that. Um, but we just need to make sure we have a system of properly properly regulating the labour supply, which is something that the labour movement used to believe in, but that is now abandoned.
0: There's a lot to say about that because obviously, you know, the low wages in other countries is what allows for. Visit patreon.com slash Ashley A. for part two.